Good morning, Church of the Cross. My name is Sarah. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is good to be with you this morning. Last night, we introduced our eldest, our son, to Black Panther. (laughs) If you haven't seen it, there are several conflicts, tension points that erupt over the course of the movie. Multiple vendettas, family secrets, fights for the throne of Wakanda. Throughout the movie, however, there is a central question. How should Wakanda be ruled? How should it operate in the world? The fictitious nation of Wakanda has great wealth, financially, technologically, and societally. This wealth has been kept a secret, and the past rulers of Wakanda have chosen a certain level of isolationism. Take care of our own. Leave the rest of the world to its own madness so we don't get sucked into intractable problems. The newly installed King T'Challa must choose for himself and on behalf of his people whether to keep the seemingly stable path or to choose engagement with the messy and complicated world at large. Our Old Testament reading today has a seemingly stable Moses entering such a crossroads. While minding his own business, God blazes into the pastoral scene. He arrests Moses with disruptive revelations. With our Lenten emphasis on prayer, we'll look at this epic passage through the lens of three well-known imperatives. Hallowed be thy name, Thy kingdom come, and thy will be done. First, hallowed be thy name. Our passage from Exodus is full of what we would consider proper names. If you were to take a highlighter and mark every proper noun, every name named, your page would glow. Not only are these names kind of all over the place, but a large part of this prayer, this conversation between Moses and the Lord, is around names. This is a significant part of our text, so we'll take up much of our airtime this morning. Tim Mackey and John Collins of The Bible Project put out a podcast recently entitled, God is Not a Name. In it, they discuss that what we think of as the title, the word God, Elohim, is less of a title and more of a category, the category of deity. It is accurate to call God, God, in the same way it is accurate for you to call me human. We might even picture the tenor of our passage shifting if in verse 4, a voice called from within the bush, human, human. It would still be accurate, but it would not be in any way personal, in any way particular. Categories themselves are often concerned with condensing, with utilitarian purposes for which vagaries are sufficient. Names, on the other hand, distinguish, call out of categories. Names give space for knowing. Can you imagine meeting someone for the first time and not asking their name? Or weirder still, can you imagine asking for someone's name and them replying, 
that's not important. All you need to know is I'm human. <laughs> First, definitely not a human. <laughs> Second, run. <laughs> Moses is particularly called from within the burning bush. Not only that, he's called by a particular God. We receive two names in this passage, and in each, God reveals something about who he is, about how he wants us to know him. In verse 6, we hear, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. It's easy to overlook this name, in part because the name of Yahweh spoken later in the passage is treated so peculiarly that we often don't read it or speak it, not even in our Bibles. But note that it's at this name, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, Moses begins to fear. He hides his face. This name looms large for him. Fleming Rutledge, in her book, The Crucifixion, writes, The particularity of this God is startling. The God of Israel aligns himself with specific mortals, with individual names, who live in identifiable places on a map. They have life stories unique to themselves, by no means always edifying. This factor of undeserved election is in view whenever God is called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God has chosen Israel undeservedly, yes, but not indiscriminately. God has chosen the church undeservedly, and yet not indiscriminately. He chose Abraham. He chose Florence. He chose Isaac. He chose John. Giving his name here envelops, contextualizes Moses' story in that larger story, in those promises, in that heritage. Giving his name to us envelops our stories. This name not only identifies God, it makes a claim on us as a named and known people that partake of this same story. But that's not the only name. At verse 13, we read, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. There's a lot of musing on why Moses asked this question. He already had a name. Did he really need a backup? Do we read this as a lack of faith, maybe trying to already get out of Yahweh's plan? We know he tries it. <laughs> is he starting now? Or is he just asking to understand more of 
God's essence, more about his being. Whatever Moses' intentions in the question, whatever our intentions in our questions, what we can say about Yahweh is that he treated it seriously. He treated it as an opportunity to be known. On the screen are a few different translations of what Yahweh said. I am who I am. I will be what I will be. I will be with you. I will be there howsoever I will be there. I am he who endures. When this God gives us his name, Yahweh, to use and to know him by it, we are firstly made aware of his presence. The I will be, the I am from Yahweh's name is the same from verse 12, where he says, I will be with you. They are connected. As the last translation implies, we are also made aware of his endurance. Long after we have been, Yahweh will still be. His name makes us also aware of his power, his agency. I am who I am is often used as either the greatest statement of agency or as the utter lack of agency. I am who I am is frequently used by people as a way to say they have zero agency. They can't overcome their worst habits or flaws, and with a shoulder shrug or with a deep sigh or a sadness or with a longing to be received in their brokenness, they confess, I am who I am. Here, Yahweh proclaims what only he can, he can complete agency complete power. I am who I am. Yahweh's name brings us into his presence, his endurance, his power. Dr. John Goldingay, an Old Testament scholar and a professor at Fuller Seminary, encourages using the name of Yahweh. He writes, it was a privilege to be invited to call God by name. Part of being invited into relationship with God. It seems a shame to refuse the invitation and thereby distance ourselves from God, as odd as refusing to say the name Jesus. Our God does not hesitate to be known. His inscrutability lies in that he is other, he is uncreated, not that he is withholding. Far from it, he gives us his name. He gives us two he gives us many. May we know God as he has revealed himself. Hallowed be the name of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Thy kingdom come. The showdown in these first chapters of Exodus is between the rule of God and the rule of Pharaoh. Both seek to rule in total. Pharaoh saw the number of Hebrews rising, becoming so numerous that he began to fear them turning on him, turning on Egypt. So he put them into forced labor. And when they continued to grow, he doubled down in fear and made their lives miserable. Then he went 10 steps further and started having their baby boys murdered. He feared a threat to his power, his position, his prosperity, he feared a threat to the status quo that in his mind served him 
and seemingly his people quite well. So he responded to this fear with violence and oppression to the outsider, the other. I don't think this surprises us. This isn't new in the history of the world. While this is a particular pharaoh, we are not unaccustomed to the many pharaohs of history, the pharaohs of our own time, the pharaohs of our own stories, even the pharaonic impulses of our own hearts. The rule of pharaoh seeks, the rule pharaoh seeks is one of total domination through subjugation. But what can we say about the rule of Yahweh? Beginning in verse 7, Yahweh said, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Yahweh, rather than seeing others as threats to himself, has compassion. He does not use his lofty position to turn a blind eye, to tune out the unpleasant but to see, to hear, to care. He is not insecure. He is not driven by fear, hiding away in his palace. He will come down to bring his people up. His power is not to be hoarded, but used to rescue. The total rule of God is that of blessing. This God of Abraham had long ago said, you will be a blessing and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. This total rule, this potent desire to bless, extends beyond the confines of Abraham's blood relatives. You in this room are evidence of that. God's intention was not just to give them a better life in Egypt, I'll say that again. God's intention was not just to give them a better life in Egypt, to make this pharaoh or the next a little nicer. In our lives, we often think, I want God's kingdom to come there, in that relationship, in that illness of heart or mind or body, in that part of my vocation, in that part of our common life together. And while that is good, sometimes we subtly sneak in there and as for everything else, all good. In fact, we'd prefer it, God, if you didn't mess with that other part. We just got that figured out. I just got it under control. The good news is that Yahweh sees the misery even more acutely than we could chronicle. He hears the cries that we don't have the energy to utter. And he knows the suffering we don't even know to name as suffering because it just feels like our lot in life. In the midst of this, he acts and rules on our behalf, even when we'd settle 
In our Lenten book, Daryl Johnson writes, this and so much more is what it means to pray the second petition of the Lord's Prayer. Bring it on. Bring on your revolution. Reverse the effects of sin. Restore broken humanity. Come and reign without rival in all the earth. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. We cannot bypass that the will of Yahweh here in our Exodus passage, and indeed in all of Scripture, is to involve people in his mission. Particular, messy, gifted, imperfect, beloved people. The late Harold Ramis, known most famously as Egon from the original Ghostbusters, was an icon of comedy. He was a writer, an actor, a director, and standing at six feet two inches, and in his later years with quite a broad frame, he loomed as large as his legacy. Angela Kinsey, on the other hand, is a slight five foot one inch woman and was having her big break as accountant Angela Martin on the American version of The Office when Harold Ramis was invited to direct a few episodes. She, among others, was eager to learn from this comedy legend. And so one day she receives her script. He is directing and she needs to go on. Angela had experience doing improv, stand-up. She was in her third season of acting on the show, but singing was a terror for her. And she read that she was to sing The Little Drummer Boy in one episode. She tried to get over it, but finally had to face disappointing Ramus. Angela went to him and explained that she wanted to. She really wanted to do the song, but she just couldn't. Ramus listened with care, and he put a supportive, compassionate hand on her back and said, but you will. <laughs> In season three, episode 10, Harold Ramus's will was done. <laughs> Exodus scholar Breverage Childs wrote, the one called can drag his feet, even elicit a compromise in the divine plan, but finally he will speak for God in spite of himself. Because we have the entirety of the Pentateuch, we know that Moses did do what Yahweh, the director of this rescue mission, called him to do. In Moses' position, it might have been tempting to come and look at the sign, at the fire that doesn't burn up the bush, to take off his sandals, to honor the holiness of the ground and the name, to be thankful that the kingdom this God brings is one of blessing, and then to turn and go back to life as usual. Moses already got out of Pharaoh's rule. Yes, he was a bit on the run, but it seems that he made a nice life for himself. New family, new job, a relative amount of peace and freedom. And yet the people of God are invited into the same compassion, the same seeing, hearing, knowing, and acting that Yahweh models. We are a sent people. 
Abolitionist Harriet Tubman was aptly given the nickname Moses. She escaped enslavement and yet made at least 13 return trips to lead at least 70 others to freedom. 13 return trips. 13 times she was compelled by the love of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to put herself in life-threatening situations when she might have otherwise chosen stability and calm. The temptation to be a spectator is high. And yet, as we pray the Lord's Prayer, as we pray, thy will be done, we are telling Yahweh, here I am. May he involve us in ways that we could never predict to do things for which we hardly have the imagination. Yahweh's will be done. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. As these words frame this prayer of Moses, his communion with God, there is one final thing to note. This is a God who interrupts. These words of the Lord's Prayer invite that interruption. I want you to put in your mind a recent time you tried to eliminate interruption. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> Maybe you preemptively gave someone snacks so they wouldn't ask for snacks while you were in the middle of something. <laughs> Maybe you make yourself scarce at the office because there's that one person who always seems to make bids for your attention. Maybe you only make space for the people whose lives won't interrupt your own flow. We try to escape interruption. And if we're honest, though, our smartphones, my smartphone, might tell a different story. <laughs> Maybe a story of someone who enjoys a fair amount of interruption. Photos liked, articles that just lead to more articles, wordles completed. <laughs> we may enjoy interruption, it's just that we like it on our terms. We want to be the master of the interruption. Here's the good news. God interrupts anyway. <laughs> However much you set up your life to avoid unchosen interruptions, I'll bet good money you have not actually eliminated them. The snacks went off without a hitch, but then the kiddo fell jumping on the couch. <laughs> You're now partnered with that interrupting coworker for a new project. You've managed your relationships to a T, kept your boundaries, and yet here is someone knocking on your car window asking to talk about her need. Yahweh interrupted Moses' life. He upended the shepherding son-in-law. Yahweh interrupted our generic understanding of him with specificity, with names. He interrupted Pharaoh's plan, toppling an entire system of oppression. Yahweh interrupted the injustices perpetrated by Israel with exile. Yahweh interrupted his own silence in sending John the Baptist. He interrupted the perpetual lostness of humans when he took on flesh. Jesus' name means Yahweh saves, and he lived a life of constant interruption. 
Jesus interrupted polite worship, people's work, family relationships, and systems of power. Jesus interrupted the reign of death itself. I don't wonder if Jesus' encouragement to let the little children come to him was not, in fact, his way of saying to the disciples, we are both master interrupters, <laughs> me and these kids. And this interruption is to your benefit. Someone in our community said that every time they hear a kiddo cry out in the sermon, that's their note to pay attention. This person knows that God is an interrupter. To pray is to respond to the interrupting God and to invite that interruption to press further, to claim more of you and your life, to participate in his interrupting kingdom come and his interrupting will be done, to with our bodies and lives draw near and declare with bare feet, hallowed be your name. May we be a people of prayer in this. And we ask all of this in another hallowed name Jesus gave us, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.